Hello, Tim, Tim, Timothy. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I feel like I don't even need to introduce you because everyone knows who you are. Everybody, if you're watching, you have picked the right video to tune into. We have not Timothy Chalamet. We have Timothy Blasphemy, is what I would assume. <laughs> yes, yes. It is I. It is I. <laughs> feel free to change your Instagram handle to that. Yes. Uh, everybody, this is my good friend, Tim. Uh, from the, he is the creator of the new evangelicals, which I'll link below. If you don't follow yet, I don't know what you're doing. Immediately follow the new evangelicals. Tim, do you want to explain what the new evangelicals is and what your mission is? Yes. We're a tool of Satan determined to destroy the church and conquer and destroy the Bible and make it illegal everywhere. Here, here, Timothy blasphemy. Cheers. See, <laughs> blasphemous. Um, the new evangelicals, we exist primarily for the church that has left the building, uh, specifically, I mean, anyone from the church who's walking out of the building can, can join what we do, but we found that most of our community is white evangelicals. Um, you know, some people in the BIPOC community and in the queer community, just trying to find better paths forward in the Christian tradition that are not steeped in white evangelical culture. So we do three major things. We, um, um, we hold space for people to kind of process like what the hell they're coming out. Oh, can, can I say that on your podcast? Am I allowed to curse? Oh, what did you say? I said, what the hell? Am I allowed to say oh, that? Yes. I don't want to. I don't know. You're maybe you're so say, really evangelical. not a bad word. It's just a bad place. Oh, now that is a preacher's life. I mean, I don't, I, that's a whole thing. Whether <laughs> you believe in a place or not, like I don't, but I don't know. Now we're in a whole other field and now we're going to okay. get Anyway. I'll continue this conversation. So, um, yeah, so we hold space for people to kind of navigate coming out of really out of the basement of, of evangelicalism um, and into the house of the Christian tradition. We help um, people explore the different rooms of the Christian tradition for the first time, maybe by introducing them to other people who have been in other places in the Christian faith, still yeah. faithful to Jesus. Um, and then of course we do a lot of content. We do a ton of content and, uh, you know, just social media stuff. So we definitely keep busy for sure. There's a lot going on, but, um, yeah, that's kind of what we do. Lovely. Again, if you don't follow New Evangelicals, please just hit the link. If you're listening on audio, go on Instagram, open it. I don't know what you're doing with your life. Um, <laughs> it's a fantastic account. It's where I get all my news about what's going on culturally in the world of the church. So uh, I want to preface before we jump in that yeah. Please Elaborate is not a religious organization. We're not affiliated with any sort of religion. Um, but when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion and the perpetuation of racism in America or homophobia in America, you know, sexuality in America, you can't talk about any of those things without talking about religion because specifically Christianity, obviously, because America was founded on a very, very specific brand of Christianity specific denomination. So that's what we're going to hold space for in this conversation for everyone listening. Tim and I are going to talk through primarily Tim is going to walk us through how the current church and religious communities in America are taking part in or not taking responsibility for their role in perpetuating racism and how they can fix that and and have a, a voice in the community again. Um, so with Without further ado, here's the first question. Mm. What, what is it about racism that puts evangelicals and fundamentalists on the defense? Why is it so hard to acknowledge the church's role in racism? 
Well, I think we have to first define terms, right? I mean, evangelical fundamentalists, those are big, big terms. And I'm not sure how familiar your audience is with them. So let me just say that from my vantage point, I'm particularly talking about white evangelicals. Okay. I'm not talking about Episcopalians, about, um, you know, the Catholics, you know, anything like that. Now, certainly there are people in those traditions critiquing them, uh, but that's not really my wheelhouse. I'm really focused on white evangelicalism. That's my tradition. That's what I came out of. And you're question about um, why or what what is it about racism that puts evangelicals and fundamentalists on the defense it's actually I mean I don't want to oversimplify it but the reality is and you're the history person here I mean white evangelicalism slash fundamentalism and those terms kind of overlap at this point they're kind of one in the same especially among white evangelicals um, but they've been they've been some of the biggest proponents of 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 slavery historically in america um race-based child slavery was well defended by many white um fundamentalists and, and you know christians really evangelicals at the time now some evangelicals who were white like the early western tradition they were very abolitionist facing so certainly not every single uh white evangelical was was seeing it that way but really as a whole white evangelicalism has promoted and propagated race-based child slavery, Jim Crow laws. Uh, they fought uh, desegregation like hell uh, in the 60s and 70s. That's where we get the moral majority from. So I hate to be that person because I'm, I'm a committed Jesus person. And even by definition of my own name, I'm trying to be a new evangelical, but but right. my own tradition is really steeped um, in, uh, in racism. It is steeped. It, it's baked into the fabric of what we've built. Now, a lot of people who are white evangelicals like to pretend that they're colorblind, right? Well, I just don't see race. That's like the moderate position. Unfortunately, if you read even a little bit of history, and the book I recommend for this is The Bible Told Them So by J. Russell Hawkins. So he, good. So good. So good, right? He explains how even the term colorblind came from white evangelicals trying to maintain the status quo of schools staying segregated, but it was out of vogue to use the terminology. You know, so instead of saying black people are inferior, they just changed the language. So things kept to be or things stayed the same. So but again, the average white evangelical who attends a Sunday morning service isn't aware of that. Right. So I think I think that there's a lack of awareness. And of course, my last thing I'll say about this is that um, is that a lot of evangelical leaders really seem to have an allergy to any kind of serious talk about anti-racist work. And because white evangelicals are really in lockstep with conservative media and conservative media knows that when the whole critical race discussion blew up that was intentionally manufactured by conservative media look up christopher rufo he's the architect behind this he's admitted it on twitter this is not a secret this is not conspiracy um but he really convinced white evangelicals that quote critical race theory is this umbrella term for anything anti-racist and it's secretly dangerous to the church and then because of that, you have the church media machine then, you know, doing conferences on why, quote unquote, CRT is not biblical, or you have books coming out trying to push against that. Um, evangelicals get radicalized to start going into their school boards and demanding that no critical race theory is being taught to their children, all based on, on a very intentionally propagandist version of what critical race theory is. So I know it's, I said a lot there, and we can unpack that, but we have to understand, especially if your listeners are not familiar with white evangelicalism, it is an empire 
that goes largely unnoticed by the average Joe, so to speak, right in America, but is incredibly powerful. And unfortunately, racism was baked in and still refuses to be acknowledged widely in white evangelical spaces, lest or you're labeled a progressive or a liberal or a Marxist, and you're really dismissed. So from what you're saying, what I'm hearing is a lot of that defensiveness and agitation that we see in churches regarding racism or acknowledging their role in racism comes from one, a lack of awareness. So if I told, you know, an, an evangelical like, hey, did you know that the church played a significant role in the perpetuation of racism? Them having maybe not known that would say, what are you talking about? That's not true. No, and, and, and they're unaware, but then also I feel like there's a missing link of, or something else that's causing this. And it's almost a defense of the um, aura of perfectness around the church. And when you, we, I think we've seen this sometimes also with abuse in the church. Um, and when you point out a flaw or you acknowledge that the, the church community has done something harmful, even in the past, and then it's ricocheted into the future, when someone outside the church acknowledges that to people in the church, the people in the church say, what are you talking about? The church is perfect. The church is God. I mean, do you think there's any of, of that going on as well or a, or a denial of the fact that the church is severely flawed? Yeah, I mean, white evangelicalism, and just to clarify, I don't mean every single individual sure. white evangelical, but as, as a group, um, they don't know how to repent, okay? They, they know how to individually repent of like, oh, I watched porn last night, it's a bad thing, I repent. But as far as a systemic level or corporately or being able to acknowledge that, hey, as an institution, as a group, we've harmed people, they don't know how to acknowledge that and how to admit that they're wrong. Now, I don't hear many evangelicals saying the church is perfect, but what they do is they'll say, well, the church isn't perfect, but that's what grace is for. You know, listen, nothing is perfect, right? No, no one is perfect. They, what they do is they really try and minimize the actual harm that on a societal level, evangelicalism has caused people by trying to say, well, no one's perfect. We all do bad things. Yes, and usually when you do bad things, you acknowledge it and you repent and you try and go the other way. I mean, the word repent, that's what we're talking about. It means right. to go the other way and to try and make amends. White evangelicals, especially, especially when, and I can't emphasize this strongly enough, when they are indoctrinated by far-right conservative media, which most white evangelicals are. I mean, Tucker Carlson, for example, three and a half million um, nightly listeners, most are old white evangelical people. That's who, the, that's who disciples them, right? So when you combine those two things, a lack of awareness, um, a lack of being able to repent on a systemic level because of the hyper-individualism we see in these spaces, plus you have someone like Tucker Carlson or Charlie Kirk or Ali Sucky telling you the media is lying to you, this is revisionist history, History. It's not that bad. And they go, yeah, you're right. There, that, that, those ingredients bake a cake that is extremely um, poisonous and toxic uh, to those spaces and also tells culture that ultimately we don't care what you think. We don't care how much data you give us. We've written our own story and we will now find any data points to reinforce that story over anything else. It's that psychology. Uh, and I know a lot of research has come out about this in the last like five years of a, your human brain, whatever you've been told for a long period of time, you develop synapses in your brain that that's your truth. You can look at facts that contradict 
and you can still not believe the facts because it goes yeah. against the synapses in your brain. And I see that a lot happening here where you could be faced with a fact and because you've been raised to believe X, Y, or Z, if that fact contradicts X, Y, or Z, you're not going to acknowledge it or see it as valid. And you, you literally can't see it and your brain rewrites it. And I think I see a lot of that happening too in other spheres as well, but specifically in here. Um, so, I, so I'm going to assume that your audience may be somewhat familiar, but for a second, let's pretend that, that, that your average person listening has not grown up in these spaces. You okay. have to understand when, when, when you're a kid and from the beginning, you're taught that the Bible Really, it's their interpretation, but they don't tell you that. They say the Bible right. is God's word to us. It's literal, you, you know, and, and the pastor is the one who communicates God's truth to you, right? When you have that kind of indoctrination at age four, all through your life, those synapses are built. And, and I have found that, again, overall, evangelicalism is a very anti-intellectual movement. They really rely more on dogma, on, on, on appeals to authority, on appeals to, well, as your pastor, I'm not giving you my opinion. I'm just giving you God's word. I mean, that's that's the kind of dog dogmatic rhetoric that we're grown up being taught, right? And so, yes, you're, you're exactly right. When you have that as, as, as what has, uh, when you have that ideology, um, um, ingrained in you and that has formed how you view the world when someone comes up and says actually you know i don't know if genesis one really talks about a literal six-day creation period it doesn't matter how much data you give someone unless they're really trying to learn to be open but the average evangelical goes sorry god's word is clear and i will not believe what man says right quote unquote or what quote unquote right. science says and i don't mean to rant or, or ramble about this but I cannot emphasize strongly enough how the culture wars play into this, how this the, this lack of trust re, um, reinforced by conservative media, don't trust the mainstream media. I mean, that was Rush Limbaugh's thing forever. I listened to him right. growing up as a kid. The, the drive-by media, the mainstream media, we're giving you the truth, they're not. That all reinforces this idea of like, yes, we have a secret knowledge, right? It's almost Gnostic in that way, that, that, that maybe the average American doesn't know. They're just being lied to by the drive-by media but thank god for rush limbaugh and for my pastor who gives me god's absolute truth when you combine those things you get um an allergy uh towards any towards certain words racism social justice etc so there's yeah. a lot here but it's yeah. important to understand it's not just one thing there are several ingredients to your playing a role and it's a long term this is a long game this is a result of continued indoctrination and yeah Oh, yeah. I mean, we you and you're a history person, you know, I'm learning more history, but we both know that 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 Trump, for example, he was not an anomaly. He was the fruit of 35, 40, 50, 60 years of, of moral majority, you know, far right indoctrination. And now we have the fruit of Trump. That's what that's what that ideology has bore us. And what would you say? This is one of my favorite questions to ask people, because I get it a lot. What would you mm -hmm. say to someone who said, racism or inequality, slavery, you know, that's all in the past. I didn't own slaves. So that's, that's yeah. in the past. What do you say mm -hmm. to that? 
yeah, well, if this is a Christian, right? This is an evangelical is like, hey, I didn't own slaves. I would say you're right. Um, however, obviously you see the world through a hyper individualist lens. And certainly there is precedent for people to repent on behalf of people. I mean, we see this in scripture. Um, we, we see Moses do this, et cetera, right? And also what it does is it deflects from the reality and the lived experience of the black community today. And it also fails to take into account the ripple effects. I mean, for example, if you look up the data, right? Why in America in 2022, if racism doesn't exist anymore, why is the wealth gap between black and white people enormous? I mean, it's like a 90% difference. It's I just read us- Black people make- one dollar and 53 cents for every 100 dollars made by white people it, it's something like that i mean it's a very insane amount right or how about you look at I me mean, a recent oxfam study came out 50 percent of bipoc folks make under 15 dollars an hour okay so why is that now the answer we're taught in these spaces is oh well they just don't work hard enough you know it's, it's just a matter of, of of pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps it does not take into account uh, generational trauma. It doesn't take into account the redlining that our own federal government did in the 60s and 70s. It doesn't take into account the consequences. So maybe to put it in, 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 in a visual form, imagine we're all about, about to race. Okay. It's me, you, I don't know, my wife, whoever else, right? We're, we're, we're on like a, a 50 yard, I, I don't race, but we're on some kind of racing thing. I don't know, a, a track. And someone comes over to, to you and beats you over the head with a baseball bat right? And breaks your legs and then stops and goes, okay, go ahead and race. Now, someone could say, well, I don't get it. Why did Savannah lose? She, she's not being beat up anymore. Yeah, but your legs are broken, right? Like there's still consequences from what happened to you. And it just seems like in our culture, especially white evangelicalism that lives outside of history, they are a historical in that sense. They're unable to take into account how generations, I mean, hundreds of years of enslavement, of not being able to own property, of not being able to have successful businesses, right? Um, how that all plays a role into what we're seeing today. So that, you know, again, I, I don't want to speak too rhetorically myself, but data over dogma. Like we can read the history. We Jamar Tisby, a great um, black historian, you know, theologian says, History has the receipts. Amen to that, Jamar. So what would you say is the biggest challenge that the, when I say faith community, I'm obviously, I'm specifically asking the yeah, evangelical Christian community, what would you say is the biggest hurdle that that community is going to have to overcome in order to have any sort of voice in the community again? Because what I don't want to do, you know, I'm not bashing the, the church or anything like that. The church has done beautiful things that for humanity and um, with, with humanitarian aid and, and communal care. But I feel like the church has lost a lot of uh, voice and power in the community to, from outsiders because of its lack of effort to commune and understand the world in that way. What do you think is the biggest hurdle that the evangelical church is going to have to overcome in order to have a voice in the community again? Man, I mean, there are, are a few big ones. I think maybe we can say some of the big ingredients or hurdles. You know, one of the biggest ones is they have to get over this culture war narrative, this idea that they're at war with the, with the godless culture, trying to preserve God's truth. And, you know, anyone who isn't a white evangelical, even progressive Christians, right, they're just trying to destroy it all. I think that that is certainly a big part. Now, can they get over that? I don't know. There's a lot of money to, to, to be made there. I mean, who, <laughs> I don't, I, I, I remember, you know, uh, what is it? Bill O'Reilly, right? With, with the holiday Starbucks cup, the war on Christmas. I mean, there is an empire that feeds off of evangelical rage and they know that Donald Trump was brilliant in that way. 
I mean, they, they, in that way, he knew exactly how to play to fear-based evangelical rhetoric, and that's why he was so successful. So certainly this culture war is powerful and, and, and it's effective, but evangelicals need to get over this, this, this narrative that, oh, we're just the poor persecuted bunch and the liberal elites are trying to destroy the country. I mean, so much of this is propaganda. Um, we have data, satanic panic, the liberals, the, the gays, Obama, Marxism. I mean, I can go, I can go down the list. Things that, that, I mean, I remember when in Target, right? Oh my God, yeah. Target's going to respect the rights of trans people to use you know, uh, the bathroom of their preference. Oh my God, people are going to get raped in the bathroom. I mean, come on. It, it is, it's mass hysteria that, of course, right. now that the, the, their tornado of chaos is onto the next house, we're looking back and saying, wow, you caused a lot of damage to them and nothing actually happened, but they've already moved on. They can't acknowledge that. So I, I think by far, that is one of the biggest ones. Okay. And I think the other one I'll say is that, is that evangelicals, by and large, need to, to really get with the times regarding how we view the Bible. We have such amazing scholarship from wonderful theologians, committed Christians. I'm not talking about, you know, maybe like skeptic Bart, Bart Ehrman or something like that. Right. I'm talking about legitimately, you know, in their field, have spent their life understanding the text. And they're coming away with some very different conclusions than what really white evangelicals believe about the Bible. And, and, and I would even argue more, more uh, reformed theology types, you know, there has to be a, a, a renegotiation, a reimagining. It has to get pushed forward. I mean, Martin Luther and the Reformation, that was for its time new. Some, just because something new doesn't make it bad. But we're really in this like re-entrenchment period. And it's this weird modernist thing of, you know, absolutes. And the Bible is just giving us presuppositional truth statements. We, we, we read the Bible through such a, um, a modern lens that, that it, it really damages, I think, how we come away seeing it as being instructive for our life. So I, I think those are two maybe major ingredients. And the last one I'll say, you know, I, again, you, you asked, so I'm telling you, is this far right Christian nationalist identity that we're seeing um, happening in the public sphere needs to be repented of and it needs to be kicked out of the white evangelical church. I don't know if people understand this, but in my estimation, I think there's a few people who are who have some serious weight behind their name, who would agree. Christian nationalism, in my view, is our greatest threat to our country, as it, uh, our democracy and our country. It goes unrecognized largely by quote-unquote mainstream media, right? Um, but it is there, and it is it is terrifying. I mean, churches are hosting Lauren Boebert, Charlie Kirk, and they're espousing some pretty dangerous shit. Um, you know, in, in, in the vein of Christian thinking, but also very, um, very, um, authoritarian base, very fascist base. So that is certainly another big hurdle that we have to get rid of. I, I want to sit on that for a second, because the last question I wanted to ask you was about a phrase that's often used in regards to politics, which is, and I, I don't know if you get this a lot, but a lot of comments that I see on this or receive when I do religious history content is, we don't need politics, we need Jesus. When we're talking yeah. about political reform, gun reform, anything like that. Um, yeah. And I find that extremely ironic because saying we don't need politics, we need Jesus in a country where the politics were, were founded on the story of Jesus and where Christian nationalism is seen as a, a valid voice and story by many, I find it really, really ironic and problematic to then say, 
we are going we're going to we're going to loop christianity into politics christians should always be in politics you know christian nationalism you know the belief if people are listening they might not know what the actual term is the belief that the american politics should be rooted in christianity in summation conservative white evangelical conservative white evangelical yeah i should specify right. uh, uh christian beliefs and so the idea that you could have this idea that america should be rooted in this white evangelical Christian ideology, and also you don't need politics, you need Jesus. Those mm -hmm. two things don't go hand in hand. Those are literally right. polar opposites. So That's what right. do you what do you do with that? What is what is going on there? Why are why yeah, well, are I mean, saying that? I mean, to speak frankly, and you can censor this, it's it, it, it's really a bullshit line. Um, it, it is empty. It is propaganda. It's rhetoric. Um, because the same people who say that are are fighting, you know, tooth and nail to outlaw abortion everywhere for every single reason. So right. the, the the statement is not. It shouldn't be. We don't need politics. We need Jesus. It should be. We need to enforce our politics, and everyone else should just pray a prayer. I mean, that that's what it 100%. comes down to. Yeah. You know, yeah, I mean, that, 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 that's what it looks like fleshed out. Now, the reason why people can say this is because, again, they're taught to live with dissonance from an early age, right? So, mm -hmm. in, 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 for example, we're supposed to believe that Genesis 1, um, a snake literally talked. Think about that. You yeah. know, it was just normalized for me. Like, oh, yeah, it, here's the story. If actually happened this way, camcorder footage, as Tim Mackey from the Bible Project would say, you know, like the snake started talking. So, so we can live with dissonance. Right. So that's why phrases like this get thrown around like a beach ball at a Nickelback concert. Right. Because they they can live a different life than what they actually espouse. No one, no actual Christian would. If I told you today, hey, Savannah, um, a snake talked to me today. No one would believe me. OK. And even if I record it, they go, oh, this is doctored. This is edited. Right. No one would believe me. But then we read Genesis 1 and go, oh, yeah, the snake definitely talked, literally yeah. definitely talked yeah. to Eve. Not even a question. Right. So we're already we're already predisposed to living in this kind of weird duality. That's good. It's already baked into the system. So that's why evangelicals can say these trite, hollow words. We don't need politics. We need Jesus while campaigning on, on remaking America in, into the image of Christian nationalism. Now, one thing I would say, and you're the historian here, not me, but I'm under the impression, I'm really, at this point, I'm, I'm going to be quoting a little more of Andrew Seidel, who wrote the book, The Founding Myth, that really we were not founded on Jesus principles. I mean, the founders are very intentional not to make us a theocracy, not to bring really any kind of Christian deity into the, into the you know, into our constitution, et cetera. In fact, Andrew, who's a constitutional lawyer, says that we're the first ever country to not have a deity reference in our founding document, which I think is very interesting to me. But that will not stop Christian nationalists from creating a myth, right? This, right. this lost cause kind of narrative. Oh, no, no, no. We were founded on quote unquote Christian Judeo principles, which by the way, is a new term. It was not thrown around in 1776, okay? So, so Christian nationalism in particular is very good at creating its own narratives, finding a few select pieces of evidence out of their context to try and justify, you know, the, that that's the proof. And then they have no problem living with dissonance. I mean, this, again, they will say, so, well, we can't fix racism. That's, that is a hard issue, but we can sure as hell fix abortion. Oh, that's not a hard issue. That's a legislation issue, right? Tim, guns don't kill people. Evil people kill people. And we can't legislate morality. Oh, the queers cannot have legal rights. Not even a question. No, 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 no. Right. So again, they, they have a narrative. They selectively pick their data points or so-called data points to fit that narrative. And that's why I say often they are more committed to dogma than data.
I see what you're saying because what I'm noticing is with the evangelical political um, obsessions, I should say, the things that the evangelical church wants to fix are conveniently the things that have no effect on them. Um, abortion and LGBTQ rights. Granted, I know that there are some people that would identify as clear in the evangelical space and they cannot come out for fear of ostracization. Yeah. And for that, um, my heart goes out to you and I encourage you, please come out, find help. I, I, my heart breaks for people in that environment because I know that they feel trapped. And then you have this environment where having an abortion or being gay or queer is seen as a sin and therefore you're less likely to do it in this space and then you outlaw those things well they're going to have no real or no um significant effect on that demographic now when you talk about you know gun reform this is a demographic that is highly armed direct effect or uh, you know, women's rights. You know, God forbid, that's a direct effect because now you've got to you've got to you know pay your women equally, and they can't just be children's ministers. And so, right. all the all the things that or or um, diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workspace. Well, now you've got to let your black congregation have leadership positions, or you know, your AAPI community be pastors, and that's going to directly affect the 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 bureaucracy you've already got in place. So the, the political reforms that would directly affect that institution, they're suddenly against, and it's, it's a heart transformation, yes. not a political transformation. That's right. But the things that have no effect on them, suddenly that's what they're fighting for. I find that I, I don't see a lot of people acknowledging that. And I just want to hold space for that. And I love your thoughts on where you, how you see that playing out eventually. Well, I mean, let me just boil it down for people very easily. It's the Christian nationalist position, and many also, I would argue, in the GOP, the position is freedom for me and not for thee. That's what this boils down to. I mean, I have asked Christian nationalist pastors on my own podcast. I interviewed one. And I asked him, when you say freedom, who is it for? Oh, well, for all Americans. I said, well, do you support um, the gays being, you know, gay people being able to, able to get married? Well, no. Okay, so there it is. You know, it's not really freedom for them. It's not legal protection for them. It comes back down to you. Christian nationalism is, okay, I'll put it this way. Not all Christians are Christian nationalists, but all Christian nationalists are Christian. Okay, some might try and say, well, no, they're not real Christians. Uh, 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 uh. First off, Christianity has been used many times to do really right. bad things. Like you said earlier, done a lot of good things, a lot. Okay, and certainly we celebrate those things. But to try and make it seem like, well, these aren't real Christians, it doesn't, it, what it does is it, it, it absolves the quote unquote moderate from responsibility. Because, mm. oh, they're just now they're just out of our group. So it's not, you know, they're in, in, in a lot of evangelicals' minds, they're like the Mormons. Well, they're not really Christian. So why do I have to fight right. against polygamy and Mormonism? Right. Same Separate. kind of thing. Right. Same kind of thing here. Well, they're not, you know, this Christian nationalist thing. Mm -hmm. ah, eh, it, it's, I didn't listen. I wasn't riding it. I wasn't trying to overthrow the government in the Capitol bill, uh, in the Capitol. So not my problem. So it, it, it absolves people from responsibility. But yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head where essentially Christian nationalism is committed to really implementing laws that benefit them and really take away freedoms for all. And ironically, these are the same people who love to say the constitution, the constitution, the constitution, the constitution guarantees religious freedom for all. 
not just for Christians. And Christians time and time again want those rules changed to privilege specifically Christian nationalists over any other group. They consistently do this. So it is very interesting to watch. You know, um, it's interesting to see how, how they petition, even this whole victim mentality of, oh, we're just being so persecuted in America. I mean, it is just not true. White evangelical Christians, particularly men, are the most privileged Christians to ever walk the face of the planet. And somehow they've convinced themselves that there is a war on them that's threatening to barge into their home, take their guns, take their Bibles, and put them in prison for, for preaching on Sunday. I mean, that's the image they have in their head, right? And even the gun control debate, I don't know of anyone federally or even locally that is advocating for going into homes and taking all guns, right? right. We're talking about like, hey, should an 18-year-old be able to buy an AR-15 or multiple AR-15s? No. Oh my God, you're infringing on our rights. No, we're not talking about you owning a, a handgun or a BB gun. Right. It's not the discussion. You know, so I, 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 uh, anyway, I, I, I don't want to start drifting, but yeah. I have a question. I see a lot of cat, uh, catastrophizing in yeah. this category. And I, tell me if I'm wrong, you are more familiar with this than I am, but what, you know, if you're listening and you identify as a Christian nationalist or, or an extremist in that sense, I, I'm, I just want to throw this question out. Is catastrophizing used as a defense mechanism from actually acknowledging the gray? So what I mean by that is, when, when you're talking about, let's just use gun control because it's what we're, we're talking about right now. Um, and that category, that, that Christian nationalist category says, when, when we're all as, as a country talking about political reform, what needs to change? And you know, universal background checks or you know, age or waiting periods and things like all these little tweaks to, to gun reform. What that Christian nationalist category hears is you're taking all my guns and then uses that propaganda to instill fear in the rest of the demographic. And, and instead of just acknowledging that it's not what it's not that extreme. And we see we saw that a lot with abortion, too, where they kept saying um, that abortion is is killing babies at eight months pregnant. And it's like that's not what it was. There's so much gray and there was so there's so many different timelines and, and ways of navigating that conversation, but they went to the, the most extreme and then said that is definitively what the government is wanting is to right. kill babies at nine months old, or they're taking away all your guns and then saying that that's what it is. And there is no other option and using right. that as propaganda to get people on board. That's what I saw as an onlooker. Is that what's happening? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. It, it, it's disingenuous takes. I mean, it is hot button, hot takes that are largely empty. And what they'll do is they'll find like one example out of 300 million gun owners. They look, there it is. There it is. It's happening. Of course, they haven't even been able to prove that. But yes, I mean, and in particular, um, in particular, um, with the gun control, you know, we have to factor in the NRA, we have to factor in the, the Christian obsession with guns in America, which is not a global thing. Many Christians are appalled that, that, that Christians think that they should own as many guns as possible. And also, it's just so interesting because it just goes against, like, even when I was taught as a kid, you know, Christians die to self, Christians aren't selfish, Christians ask for forgiveness, Christians give up their rights for the sake of the other. And it just seems like, in particular, these white evangelicals can't even consider you know, hey, you know what, if I can only own two guns instead of three, and it saves someone's life, 
I'm on board with that. Instead, it's like, no, my rights, my rights, even as right. kids are being gunned down in school, you know, and, and they justify it in their own head. Um, you know, oh, these, these, this legislation won't work, but it, it just goes against the data we have. It goes against reality, but right. they continue to tell themselves, uh, tell themselves that and in hopes that it starts really, I would argue, gaslighting everyone else. If to, my last question to you to close here. If a if someone listening here identifies as a Christian nationalist, or even maybe uh, just aligns with some of these things we're talking about uh, in terms of that extremism, what would you tell them? And you know, what how what would you encourage them to do? I'm honestly concerned about that because. Um... I think a lot of Christian nationalists have their mind made up. Like you mentioned earlier, the synapses are built. I mean, listen, we ch- I have to be frank and honest with you. When two years later after an insurrection attempt and data's coming out via hearing, you know, that it, that has two Republicans on it and, and we're hearing testimony, we're seeing footage, we're, we're hearing from Trump's own internal allies like Bill Barr, who was a Trump loyalist, say that Trump was out of his mind that he was concerned yeah. about the president's mental health at that point, you know, and then and then saying that that the whole Dominion voting machine narrative was bogus, you know, the documentary Two Thousand Mules is bogus, and then people still double down saying no, this is propaganda. I don't know what to do with that. Right. Like I am concerned. We're at such a point in our in our country's history where it's like friends. If we can't agree that the election was not stolen, right, even as Trump's allies, Trump's uh, uh, court appointees tell us that, even as Trump's own lawyers who were trying to litigate for him tell us that they were not trying to litigate that, that the election was stolen, and you tell me, no, this is liberal propaganda, I don't know how to move forward from that. I mean, in my mind, and I don't mean to sound dehumanized but we're in like flat earth conspiracy territory here like how do you convince a flat earther that the earth isn't flat a lot of times you just no data will do it because i think ultimately story is more important than data for for a human being and that goes for me too i'm much more attracted to story than just raw data right so if the story is democrats are trying to destroy america and trump is trying to save it I don't know how much rationalization, how, much, how, how, how gentle we can say it, um, that will convince someone that, that, that this is just, I, again, I don't want to push them farther away, but it's lunacy. Like, it is lunacy. Please come out of the world of make-believe. So I, I don't know where to, where to go with that. I've interviewed Christian nationalists on my podcast. I try and hold space and have that dialogue. But the farther I go down this, this path and the more I see what's happening today, two years later, I'm just like, I don't know if we can have a dialogue anymore because what world are, are we living in here? You know, and there's yep. so much more we could say about that. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know what to say at this point to Christian nationalists besides please, please just start using your own head. Look at actual data and, and try and be genuine. Try and follow the way of Jesus. I mean, read, read the Beatitudes and then try and match that up with, with, with the ethos of Trump and the party that you claim is taking America back for God. See if they match up. They don't. Yeah. It's like um, what I usually say in the, in that, to that category of people is, or how I approach it is the only way to heal or use the same way that you, that you got here is the same way you got to go back. And so the same way that you got here to this way of thinking was over time, perpetual discussions and a slow burn. 
that's the same way you got to come out of it. It's not going to be overnight. It's going to be surrounding yourself with people that think differently than you surrounding yourself with people that are politically different, that, um, you know, that look different than you live differently than you. And it's a slow burn. And so I don't think we will see the undoing of this for decades because decades is how we got here. And yeah, that is true. You know, and I just let your audience know, I mean, I grew up homeschooled. I grew up in fundamentalism. I, I was a Ben Shapiro listener. I grew up on talk radio. Like I was in it. What yeah. got me out of it was what you said, but also I always, and I'm not saying Christian nationalists generally aren't this way, but I was always curious. Okay. Like what's the other perspective. And so if someone doesn't have that mentality and they, they feel like I found my, I found what God wants me to do. That's such a powerful belief that, you know, the whole God thing is a whole different psychological thing that we can talk about, right? The belief in God and a higher power telling you the ultimate authority. That's a big deal. So without that piece of, well, you know, the world's bigger than me. How do I keep exploring? How do I listen to other perspectives and try and take them seriously? I just don't know if we come out of it, especially when you couple that with the very powerful, very well-funded right-wing propaganda machine that is conservative media. I mean, we cannot sleep on those people. Ben Shapiro, Daily, um, Daily Wire, Matt Walsh, Candace Owens, Ali Sucky, Charlie Kirk. You know, I can go on and on and on. They are pushing out narratives daily, daily that only re-entrench their base. And I'll say one last thing. I'll stop yelling in the microphone here. But Charlie Kirk in particular started what's called Turning Point Faith. He is in white evangelical spaces talking not to little fringe churches, talking to mega churches. One example of this, just so your audience is aware of, of how we're seeing this inter, intertwining. Charlie Kirk, Turning Point, uh, Turning Point Faith, has partnered, partnered with Dream City Church, a 20,000-person megachurch in Arizona, to launch Turning Point Academy. It's an elementary school for kids, okay? So they are, you want to talk about, quote-unquote, indoctrination, you're seeing it happen right in front of us. And they say very clearly, they're not here to promote a quote, woke agenda or to teach quote, critical race theory. These are all terms, right? For conservative, I would argue white supremacy, um, you know, re-entrenchment. So I, I don't see this getting better anytime soon. And I think it's important that, that we resist it as non-dehumanizingly as possible, but we have to resist it. We have to find better paths forward because what's happening in white evangelical spaces will, will impact the culture as a whole, not just white evangelicals. Yep. I don't know how to pivot from that. That was a, a mic drop moment. I have no other <laughs> questions. No further questions. <laughs> <laughs> I rest um, my case. <laughs> so before we close, how can people find you? You got anything else coming out? I know you've got like 40 other ways that people can connect. How can people get in touch with you in the new evangelical? Yeah, we have a podcast. Anything that, that says the new evangelicals is probably us. On Instagram, I've been told that we've kind of been shadow banned. Like if you if you search it, it won't come up right away. So type in the new evangelicals and you'll find us. But Instagram is how we communicate the most. But yeah, we podcast, website, TikTok, you know, the whole nine. We're, we're doing it all, Twitter. So you can find us on any one of those channels. And you do something really cool for people that want to want to have more discussions in a smaller way. You have something on your website where people can find other people in the community to have conversations, right? Yeah, we have a community map. <coughs> Excuse me. You can sign up for free. There's no cost. I should mention, too, that there's no cost for any work that we do. We are totally um, crowdfunded. There's no Patreon. It's all grassroots donations to fund the work that we do. We don't feel right charging people for help. So, yeah, you can go to our website, thenewevangelicals.com, make an account for free, sign up, take a look at who's in your area. You can DM them from there for a cup of non-proselytizing coffee. Uh, and we also do Zoom groups weekly. So we, we do a lot of more interactive things as well. Cool. Tim, as always, it is the absolute pleasure. We'll have to have you back for a part two, three, and four. 
Thank you, my friend. Enjoy Anytime. the rest of your day. I will see you later. I'll talk to you later.